Hello, this is Bill Curley. And Holly Hudley. And welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life. Um, hi, Holly. Hi, Bill. <laughs> so, uh, are we going to let people in on the secret that we're recording a little bit early so you can go get a new child? <laughs> a new child. Um, well, that's we what can it let would them be believe like, that bro. I'm going to get a new child. <laughs> um, I'm getting a new puppy, and I have been wanting one of these puppies for years. I have a friend who breeds them and she has the mellowest, sweetest, most gentle temperament dog. So I trust her immensely when it comes to what kind of dog is breed. It? It's called an English cream retriever. It's like a white golden retriever, but they have a little bit more of a square face. And um, I have a dog who's 15 or almost 15. And I have always said that if I had a hundred of these dogs, just like my dog, Ali, he, he is like a rug. He's so gentle. He's so sweet. Then I would have a hundred (laughs) dogs because of his temperament. And these dogs, these English cream retrievers have Ali's temperament, just so easygoing. And Ali is not long for this world. He is all of a sudden a very old dog. He has a really hard time getting up. I have a dog, as you know, who's also old. He's quick coming upstairs. And I think about getting another dog like you're doing. And I think, do I have the energy to go through that two-year period? Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's funny. I have this, I have a Labradoodle. You know, you have a poodle. but um, And my Labradoodle has been temperamentally one of the most difficult dogs I've ever had. Um, But in terms of training and he, he has never chewed something up a day in his life. He has never, he had very few accidents as a puppy. He was, in terms of being housebroken, he's a great dog. But in terms of his ability to just kind of be really chill, <laughs> he is not. So I, I will tell you a dog story and then I want to get into mm-hmm. the exciting area yeah. that I think we're about to get into. Yes. Um, <laughs> I wanted a dog forever and I didn't have a lifestyle to have a dog. So when I got the place where I could get a dog, I I knew exactly what I wanted. I wanted a solid black standard poodle. And I looked several places before finally finding the dog that called to me. And um, the breeder that we got Chet from said... um, if you ha- no, no, it's not the breeder. The breeder re- required us to take the dog before we completed the transaction to a vet to make sure the dog was okay and all that sort of stuff. So we did that. And the vet is the one who said, uh, when's the last time you had a dog? And I said, oh, when I was a teenager? And she <laughs> said, um, I suggest that you hire a trainer to help yeah. you get acclimated to this dog. So we did that a couple who came to our house and helped us get started with Jet. And they gave us some really invaluable advice. One piece of advice was um, don't ever 
punish the dog for doing something you don't like. Because any interaction that you have with a dog only reinforces that behavior. Because they can't tell, right? Yeah. So they train, they they showed us how to train Jet to go to the potty outside using a clicker. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, so we did that. And Jet, uh, you know, I got a poodle because they have this reputation for being so smart. Jet was so smart that when he wanted a treat, he would go to the back door, wait for us to let him out. He would go into the backyard and pretend to pee. (laughs) (laughs) So we'd give him a treat. We said, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah, I may do that. So one more tiny thing about dogs. I had implemented the the clicker trick also on the advice of of a dog trainer with my previous dog who was wonderful but hard-headed um, and he was terrified of the clicker. So he just ran the other way. <laughs> I put it in a drawer and some years later I was moving from Houston to Boston to go to grad school and I found the clicker and I was like, oh, this dang thing. And I started clicking it. My dog comes running from the other room, sits at my feet and acts like he wants a treat. I was like, are you kidding me? So after years of being terrified of the clicker, it worked. <laughs> oh, did you take that dog to Boston? I did. He was with me from the time I was about 24 and he died when I was 40. He saw wow. me through a lot of life. He is my kind of, what do you want to say? My soul dog a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. he saw me through a lot of growing up. <laughs> but Yeah. So, um, um, so here we are talking about dogs, which is appropriate because dog and God are, what, what is that word when you have a a mirror, a mirror image? Yeah. (laughs) God gave us dogs to teach us unconditional love. And I think also to help us prepare for death because they die before we do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that life death continuum is one we're all on all the time but dogs definitely help us to understand the impermanence of things so um i'm holding in my hands a book that i think i have two copies of i'm going to try to find the second copy to give to you this book which is called Mm -hmm. mystical christianity a psychological commentary on the gospel of john and um because we're going to get into the gospel of John. Yeah. And even as we talk about Eckhart, there's so many parallels between the gospel of John and as, and, and reading through some of these Eckhart books too. So don't buy this mm-hmm. book. I'm okay. I'm glad I didn't. Cause it's on, it was on my list to buy. <laughs> and, and, uh, unfortunately for me, it's not in a Kindle edition. Uh, mm. I really love reading in Kindle, but I've been reading, um, John Shelby Spong's book, The Fourth Gospel, Tales of a Jewish Mystic. And it is so helpful, especially mm-hmm. to go back and read Shelby Spong's material in light of the Meister Eckhart stuff that we're reading. Because Spong, mm-hmm. like Eckhart, says that we have to learn to interpret the Jesus story in a mystical way, in a metaphorical yeah. way, in a symbolic way, in a parabolic way. That's the way we get to it. 
Well, that it's, I, I love that that's what you're saying. Cause actually, um, you know, I'm reading through this book, The Way of Paradox by um, Cyprian Smith. And I'll, I'll say this, I, I think you recommended this book to me. I think it is well worth reading. I also will just upfront say my only kind of wrestling with Cyprian Smith is that his God, his heaven is still out hmm. there. Um, and so he's, you can see him struggling with this language a little mm-hmm. bit, you know, this, this language of paradox and the language of mysticism, but he does some, a beautiful job on so many levels of kind of walking through the paradox of Meister Eckhart and the paradox of the Christian teachings. And he's in this, I'm in the section where he's talking about how do we understand myth, what a mystic is and mysticism. And, you know, so, so commonly mysticism is associated with um, a different frame of mind that might be induced by a trance-like state. Some have found it through drugs. Some have found it through deep states of meditation. But he's saying, no, the mystic is in the regular mind and can incorporate all of life's experiences, right? And it's, it's just, so this kind of, like alchemy of the human soul is what he's talking about. But he says a mystic, according to this view that is in kind of regular mind and can take life's regular, difficult, harrowing, joyful experiences with equanimity is one who instead of merely believing in God actually experiences God. And it's so interesting to think about so often with mysticism it's also related to this expansion of consciousness. I love this definition. It's actually breaking through consciousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I will, I cannot quote the origin of this right now. A great German theologian of the last century said that Christianity going forward, the Christian going forward will be a mystic or he will not be at all. Mm. And I think that the writings of Iliadelio are quite mystical and that what she's Absolutely. pointing to is quite mystical. Yeah. So um, what we're going to be talking about Sunday, the title I've given it is uh, the, the Beyond um, in Our Midst. And um, we're going to start again talking about paradox and contradiction, but I want to, and what I've been struggling to write is to say how uh, we now can see in the writings, especially of John, and in the way that interpreters are now helping me at least see the writings of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because they were based on Q that also the Gospel of Thomas, these are all very mystical writings, and, and there was a very mystical aspect to both the, the Jewish Christian movement when in the first hundred years um, of the Jesus movement, and then after the split from Judaism, it uh, they there came to be a need to define and draw boundaries, and that contradicted the essence of the message of Jesus, which was about inclusion and about a different way of seeing and experiencing the holy. And that's what John is all about. And that's what we're going to begin talking about. My experiential 
knowledge of John has been through an evangelical lens rather than through a mystical lens. In other words, taught to me to take literally. Um, not by, you know, you are a biblical scholar, but you're not a Bible teacher in the sense that you come to class with your Bible, read from the scripture and interpret it for us, right? Even though mm -hmm. you use scripture, you use biblical parables, you use it to inform all that you're saying about our integration of self. But I don't associate you with that sort of like, the lesson for today is John 3.16, right? Mm -hmm. Um and, and, and that's the way John has been interpreted to me. So I'm looking forward to experiencing it in a new way. Cause I don't think I've really in any meaningful way returned to it for a very long time. Well, it was, it, it, think about it this way, that um, Jesus was a mystic. Mm -hmm. He was a Jewish mystic who had <clears throat> mystical experiences that he talked about and um, in the book, Rabbi Jesus by Bruce Chilton, Bruce Chilton is a historian. He's a member of the Jesus Seminar, usually around Easter on TV and Christmas on TV, or if they're doing some Holy Land thing on PBS or something, History Channel, Bruce Chilton will show up because he's an authority on that, that stuff. And... Um, Bruce is what we call in the theological biblical studies business. He is a theological archaeological anthropologist. Hmm. He's a forensic theological anthropologist. Hmm. So they go back and they take what we now are learning from um archaeology, from what we're learning from biblical scholars <clears throat> like John Dominic Crossan, who continues to find these pieces of manuscripts to translate, that, um, that, that, that early on, when there was no creed, when there were no Bible, there were these rituals that people did, these things that they did when they gathered. They had a ritual meal that they did together. The, intro, the, the introduction of people into the Christian movement through baptism was something that um, Jesus and John and the, adopted from the Jewish ritual washing. Mm -hmm. um, and Bruce Chilton says that there is actually some evidence that um, the people like Jesus went to these ritual baths or to the Jordan and immersed themselves over and over and over again, and probably induced some mystical experience, some, mm -hmm. you know, that you get into mystical dancing or a sweat lodge or something right. like that. And that's where they access their experience of the holy. Mm. You know, water plays such a, a part in the, almost all of the stories about or including Jesus or about God. Um, and I just was thinking about, you know, I, I feel like this is going to become really redundant, but I, I'm, I'm still in this book. Facing the Deep by Catherine Keller. It's, it's dense. And so it's, it's, I kind of have to take it in a little bit at a time. But this watery abyss is, um, is, is 
is the ground of being, right? And, and that's, so it's the unknown and so much of what I'm reading in the way of paradox in Catherine Keller of Meister Eckhart's word that has been translated is about that, that abyss, right? That is not actually nothing, but that is transformation. And so it's just interesting as you tell this, that these followers of Jesus um, went to the waters, right? That, that, that the waters and water is also symbolic of birth. You know, what, where the child comes from in birth is, is a watery abyss, <laughs> you know? And so this, this, this analogy from the first verse of Genesis, from the, uh, the bird hovering over the watery abyss to birth, the, the child coming from the watery abyss to transformation coming out of that abyss, that that necessary plunge into darkness, into the unknown is instrumental to any transformation that we, that we must have. Um, and I think when I read Eckhart, what I really appreciate is that as soon as he begins to talk about sort of ascendance toward the light, he brings it right back down to, but you must go into the darkness. It's this constant tension between darkness and lightness. Um, and I think that was probably Jesus. Oh, not probably. It was Jesus too. <laughs> You know, you said a minute ago that the only way that you got introduced to the writing in John is through the evangelical perspective. And the evangelical perspective is that you have, if you have faith, you have faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And um, as the Christian movement got more sophisticated, if you want to use that word, um, faith became having faith in a creed, a faith um, in a doctrine, a faith in some sort of dogma. <clears throat> like mm -hmm. it's still, it's still true for the vast majority of evangelical Christians today, that there is a belief in the virgin birth, the literal nature of the Bible, the physical right. resurrection, the belief in miracles, all that sort of thing. In the time of Jesus and after, for decades, faith meant a faith in every moment that, uh, that we were in, uh, embraced by sacred mystery in every moment. That's what the faith was. And that even though that faith did not protect us from the storms of life, we were nonetheless sustained through that. Um, right. I think that where I learned what I just said to you is by listening mm. to Jim Finley over and over and mm. over. Um, and it's not about a doctrine. It's not about a creed. It's not about a dogma. And that's what we want to try to offer teachings for the right. living of ordinary life, because we're going to talk about, you continue to talk about paradox and contradiction. Right. Well, it goes back to kind of where we started with this defining what a mystic is, is not belief centered, it's experience centered. And can we be, as you say, sustained enough by the experience of life, whatever it throws at us? to believe mm -hmm. that it is our sustenance, mm -hmm. you know, that it is our growth. Um, 
it's sort of like I had this image kind of of like reaching for something as opposed to kind of just reaching in, mm-hmm. just sort of being with. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a moment when I wish I could speak in pictures, when I could just give mm-hmm. you the picture that's in my mind instead of trying to mm-hmm. describe it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, and I, like you, um, or because of you really, Jim Finley has also been a great source of inspiration when I read him too. Um, and I'm just amazed by his, I've said this so many times, his ability, it's like you have this picture of him standing up in a canoe, which we're not supposed to do because the canoe will fall over and it's wild and it's windy, but he's just standing there laughing. That's sort of how I imagine him, you know, not that he's not touched by grief and sorrow and trauma, but this is also my picture of Jesus or the Buddha is it's not about not being touched by what happens. It's about knowing that what happens isn't all of you. And it doesn't destroy our humanity. So that's the faith. Um, That's the symbol. It doesn't have to. That's the symbol of the Christ story of Jesus having Mm -hmm. the faith to courageously go forward to Jerusalem. Now take Mm -hmm. us as a metaphor. Knowing that in order to have, he had to be willing to give up. Mm-hmm. And he left that as a model. Pearl of great price. Yeah, that's the pearl of great price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I shared with you, I, I have three books sitting by me. And as you speak, sometimes I go and go, oh, yeah, he's talking about this. <laughs> you know, these things that we're both kind of reading Um you know, one of them I mentioned is The Way of Paradox by Cyprian Smith. I do recommend it. We both recommend Book of Secrets, although you decided to, to dissuade people from buying it on Sunday. <laughs> I think it's because you want to say it first. <laughs> is that right? Or is it because you really are dissuading people? <laughs> okay, a brief parenthetical statement. As you know, my hobby <laughs> is magic. And so I get a lot yes. of magic catalogs and advertisement for newly developed magic effects and so forth. And one of the best selling points of any magic trick for a hobbyist or a magician (laughs) such as myself is um, for some well-renowned magician like David Copperfield to say, Mm I really wish that John Smith, who developed this magic trick, had kept it off the market because I want it for myself. Yeah. And then I say, that's what I thought you meant. (laughs) I've got to have this. Yeah. I want to be the one to show you the magic first, kind of. (laughs) I was hoping that if I told people not to buy it, they would. And then there's that, the psychological twist. But the third book I has, I have is In the Shelter. And I, I showed it to you the other day by Padre Gotuma. I bought it. And he has this, I'm so glad you did. And I hope you enjoy it. I just think it's such a tender When book. am I going to have um, time to read these books? I don't know. I keep asking the same thing myself as my list keeps piling up. But, you know, there as we're talking about, being in the storm or being in the abyss or being in the waters that life sort of throws at you. Um, 
and, and in fact, I'm repeating this to you, but I'm reading it out loud to, to whoever's listening for the first time. Padraig writes about the John story um, of feeding the multitudes, Jesus going into the wilderness, then coming down into the storm and, and quieting the storm. Mm-hmm. And that there's some very different scenes, all natural scenes happening within a short span of time in that storytelling, mm-hmm. right? And, and what Padraig writes is, uh, it just, it's so beautiful. He writes, the gospel writer here is a poet, as well as many other things. Even though the disciples are in a rocking boat on a stormy sea, they make to take the water walker into the boat of uncertainty. As they begin to take this water walker into their boat, they immediately reach the place that was their destination. It is as if to say that only in the middle of the storm can we find a truth that will steady us. But we know that sometimes we search and search for what we cannot see, and still it stays dark and stormy. Hello to this dark storm. And the twin story is the story of life. Sometimes it's stormy, and sometimes there is bread to share. Sometimes our picture of God is a food-sharing man on the side of a grass-covered hill, Other times it's more frightening than we can imagine. We may prefer one story over another, but they both happen over and over again and again. While I am in the storm, someone else is on the hillside and someone else is waiting in the boat, watching waves begin to form. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Now I'm gonna have to start reading that I know. It's a li- it can read a little bit like Brian Doyle's book, um, One Long River mm-hmm. of Song. You can read it in small chunks, you know, just kind of, he's separated, he mm-hmm. separates it really beautifully visually where he just kind of places a little icon at the end of each segment, even though they're, those segments are embedded in a larger chapter. Um, so um, <clears throat> I am going back and rereading Cyprian Smith's book because I bought it immediately after Jim Finley said it was the best book I could have on Eckhart. And he said, one of the things that he liked about the um, way of paradox is that it's a book that you can open to any place at any time and find something useful. So you're up to chapter 10 on the incarnation. Have you been reading straight through? I have been reading straight through. Um, I'm up to chapter eight, um, and I'm on, I'm on the chapter that is the way and the goal and yeah. And the one that I read before that chapter six and the incarnate word, which, which that, yeah, this, that to me, this, this is where Cyprian Smith kind of almost, you can just see him grappling with how do I write about non-duality? How do I write about paradox? Mm-hmm. It is very hard because as I said the other day, the second we speak something into being, it becomes a dual experience. I'm telling you what the sunset mm-hmm. was like instead of standing there with you, just absorbing it, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, but this, but the, the truth is about what he's saying and what I wholly believe is that the body is absolutely fundamentally necessary to our spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. And 
this he does a beautiful job of describing. Uh, you know, I talked about Descartes on Sunday, who was so certain that uh, he did what was called the floating man experiment, or he conceived of it. It was a thought process, not an actual experiment, where he imagined that, of course, the mind is separate from the body, because if man, his words, were to lie floating with no, with gravity not pulling him down or lifting him up, then man still has mind. In other words, doesn't need the body to think thoughts, to have great imaginings, and to even have inventions of his own mind. But mm-hmm. that, and that, that dualistic idea that our mind is somehow separate from our body really did damage, I think, to our spiritual strivings, to our spiritual oneness, our unity with all that is. Mm-hmm. There were people who, who rejected Descartes. One of them is Lady Anne Conway, a little known philosopher who wrote when Descartes was writing and said, no, it's our embodiment that matters. And that was a huge thing for a woman in that time in the 1600s to do, to say, Descartes, you're wrong. But what Cyprian Smith is saying here is that, you know, our body, Jesus is the incarnation of God. I believe everything is the incarnation of mystery. But, he, you know, Cyprian Smith is specifically writing through the Christian story. And, and so without mm-hmm. incarnation, we cannot experience Jesus or God or mystery or whatever you want to call it. Right. Mm-hmm. So Sandra Mitri in her book on the spiritual dimension of the Enneagram and making the very point that you've just been making about the sacred is in everything and that everything is perfect in the way that it ought to be. And she said, this perfection is found in everything all the way from excrement to an emerald. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, we're all without trying to get too atomistic about things. We don't want to reduce ourselves to the smallest parts because a life is, is made of all the parts, right? But that atomistic existence, that commonality is just is beautiful and stunning to me that the same a, the same thing an atom formed differently is a dog and formed differently still is my favorite tree yeah. <laughs> you know it's just amazing to me and as you say it's also everywhere Oop. yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah. so i thought for a minute about saying a bad word but i didn't <laughs> Well, I think people got what you meant. <laughs> so what we're doing, and, and I want to be very transparent about this, is that um, Ordinary Life has been back now three Sundays for in-person, yeah. and we're still finding our way. We're finding our way about <laughs> what it means to be gathered in person, to be a gathered community. And... Um, somebody in the community made a really telling comment. Uh, I think it's just a valuable piece of feedback is that over the last 15 months, Ordinary Life and its live streaming function had become like a TV show. And that what we wanted to do was uh, uh, not continue being a TV show with a live audience, but being a live audience that happens to make itself available to anybody. 
And yeah, we want to be like Trevor Noah, who can make those of us watching on screen laugh and those of us in the audience laugh, right? Yeah. Is he is he back yeah. in person yet? I think he is. You know, for Father's Day, I got Josh tickets to go see Trevor Noah in um, November. He's coming to Houston. So, yeah. Yeah. One of the places where I get my news, as you know, is I found out about um, in and of itself is from Stephen Colbert. And Stephen Colbert yeah. is now in the second week of being back live. And I record it. I don't stay up that late to watch it. But it is so energizing to see the crowd there and how much they love being with each other and being with him. And they feed off each other. It's just a, it's a wonderful thing. So also very good show. The, the one we watched last night had um, a recording was not a live interview it was a recorded interview that he did with Robert Duvall and mm. um had some clips from Duvall movies places in the heart and all that sort of thing um now Robert Duvall is 90 and wow. he's still in starring in movies well, I wouldn't say starring that's but amazing. he's in a movie that's just out <laughs> he's in a movie or two here and there yeah, yeah. that's his yeah. own kind of wonderful miracle yeah, that's true. To live that long. Um, so I, what I said, uh, where I was going with wanting to be transparent is by saying that as we're finding our way and the way that we're finding is doing some preparation work to get ready to start teaching directly from the Gospel of John. And yeah. I hope that doesn't turn people off because it's not going to be a Bible study. It's going <laughs> to it is going to be based on some things that we're reading, but it's going to be, hopefully, a reinterpretation that offers real wisdom teachings for the living yeah. of life. Um, yeah. I noticed that in the website, on the website, or somewhere that you'd put, or maybe it's on one of the slides, um, wisdom teachings for ordinary mystics. And that may be true. Yeah, I may have put that. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's definitely that that's what's available to us in this body, you know, is is to live in unity. I, I think the mystic is one who seeks a unitive experience with everything and everyone mm -hmm. around him or her. Mm -hmm. So to me, mystic and union are kind of synonymous. Mm -hmm. Now, I um, have not written part of what I think I want to do on Sunday, but I think uh, when I'm talking the, about the beyond in our midst, that, uh, that mm -hmm. the two stories, and I, again, got this by reading the Book of Secrets and by reading mm -hmm. um, The Way of Paradox and Meister Eckhart, is that what the teachings of mysticism are about is like the two parables that are in the Jesus narrative, the man who found the pearl of great price and went and sold everything to get it, and the man who mm -hmm. found a treasure in a field and also went and did what he could to get it. And mm -hmm. it's that we already possess what we're looking for. Yeah. Which is as that wisdom is as ancient 
as human ritual is, mm. you know, that the, the Hindu religion has a story very similar to that, right? That the mm -hmm. divinity. I think this is one of the reasons within. that, and yeah. I'm, I'm prompted to say these two things in response to what you say. That's one of the reasons that I value nighttime dreams so much. Mm. Is that I faithfully recorded my dreams for 40, 50 years now every morning. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I go back periodically and reread them. And I think, where did that come from? How did, how did my unconscious have the creativity to put a story like that together? Because I would have never thought of that. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Obviously, there is that within me which created that. Yeah. And it's the same exact experience that I had when um, early in our marriage, my beautiful bride is uh, affected with a travel gene that's out of control. Mm -hmm. And so she has taken me on some of the most wonderful trips. And mm -hmm. one of the first trips we went on together was to go to Spain. And we went to the Avila, but we also went to Toledo. Mm -hmm. And I remember, I mean, this is before, well, I mean, this is 40 years ago. So mm -hmm. we're talking about before all the restrictions that are in place now, I mean, you could walk into Teresa's place and you didn't, it, it, there weren't many travel protections and tourists were pretty mm -hmm. free to do whatever. Right. And I remember walking into the cathedral in Toledo and thinking it was kind of comical because mm -hmm. what came out of my mouth was holy Toledo. And I hadn't thought about saying that. It was just, it was just there. And then I thought, where, where did this come from? Yeah. Who thought of this? Yeah. And obviously, it's a product of the collective imagination and a co collective mm -hmm. they to put together this incredible work of architectural art that took centuries to do mm -hmm. who did mm -hmm. that yeah i mean this is you know, this i think is so stunning always to behold like stop you in your seat kind of stunning you know is that we are capable of such beauty and such harm uh, yep and 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 those two things you know this is we'll get into this too but that's the kind of like that's the Ananias and Saul mm -hmm. image, right? That's also the Judas and Jesus image. And that, I can't remember where I was reading this. It might be in the way of paradox. It might be in Edward Edinger books, but you know, the cathedral, as you were just talking about, or the, or the, the holy space isn't, is its own archetype, right? It changes form from place to place to place, but it's its own archetype. Right. And, and, and in the process of becoming of unit of mind, of integrated mind, the, the sort of goal, if you will, and that's not the right word, but is to become our own archetype. You know, Christ is the archetype of integration. There are others, but Christ is the Christian archetype of, of integration, of the integrated soul who can kiss Judas and then go die. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's just this kind of 
acceptance of what must be that Jesus teaches us to have that I think I, I'm in awe of, <laughs> you know, um, but yes, dreams, as you say, I mean, it's just dreams. We have an opportunity to be in that sort of liminal, numinous space every night. And I have some wild dreams. Sometimes I wake up and I only have the feeling of the dream. I can't remember a thing about it. Just the feeling of the dream. That ever happened to you? Yeah, it does. Uh, there are times when I have a very, very vivid dream. I know I'm having a vivid dream and I can't get it back in the morning. Mm -hmm. And, um, but most of the time, I keep pretty faithful with my dream maker. And yeah. <laughs> if my dream maker is offering me something, I want to say, okay, let me have it. And uh, yeah. so occasionally I'll, yeah. uh, as you know, you know, this, my spiritual director is an analyst expert in the Enneagram and other things. And I see her about once a month and um, mm. we talk about dreams. And the last time we did this, she said, um, do you keep a gratitude journal, right? I said, yes, I do. And she said, how often do you write down how blessed you are? I said, what do you mean? And she said, to have these dreams and to be able to make associations with them is so, you're so blessed. Mm. And that's true. Mm. To have this mm. conversation with you and to have the work that we've done the last 15 months it's just yeah. and continue to do is such a blessing yeah. i 1000% agree <laughs> that's a good it place is. to stop good place to stop we'll see you on sunday <laughs> okay well enjoy enjoy the experience yeah. and i will see you sunday okay see you soon bye bye bye